Are you reading the uh, the script? Well, the audible read is up at the top. It's not. Not anymore. I moved it. I must need to hit refresh. Let me see here. <laughs> oh, there it is. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we look at a great character and a great story. I'm Joseph Dorowski. And I'm Todd Mack. Todd, how have you been? Uh, I'm well. We were. Uh, I had a little a battle of wills tonight with a three-year-old trying to get him into bed. <laughs> it, was, it was a colossal battle of wills, but I think I won. Can I, I tell you heard, if I have to just walk out of here, <laughs> you'll know why. Can I tell you a story about my three-year-old this week? Yes, please do. So anyone who's coming back to this at a later date, this is recording in, in late, uh, mid to late January. And this week I heard a sound from my three-year-old's room and I went in and he was crying in bed. He was just lying there and he rolled over and he had tears in his eyes and obviously he hadn't fallen out of bed or anything. So I couldn't figure out what was going on. I was like, what, what's wrong? And he just took a deep breath and he said, Santa never brought me two front teeth. <laughs> I don't know why, you know, three weeks after Christmas, it suddenly hit him that the words of a song uh, never came true for him. He hasn't lost any teeth. He's only three, but hey, he was, he was pretty emotional about it. Wow. The minds of three-year-olds sometimes. It's, ama- it's amazing what they're like, what's just, what, what are they working on? Like, what are they chewing on all the time? It's amazing. Uh, I, yeah. He'll, uh. I mean, you know how three-year-olds are. Where they I know like exactly a, how three-year-olds are. <laughs> a favorite uh, show or a favorite toy or something. And then it, it's like no mention is made of it in the household for like three months. And then all of a sudden he's asking where this toy is. And it's like, I, I don't know. <laughs> oh, my daughter has an amazing ability to remember where her toys are. But like uh, several months, if not years later, she'll say, she's done this twice this year. I left my sunglasses at so-and-so's house in Spanish Fork, which is <laughs> which is two and a half hours from here. And we haven't been to these people's house in well over a year. And I'm like, your sunglasses are not there. And she goes, yes, they are. I left them there when we were there the last time. And sure enough, the next time we drive through, we're like, okay, fine. We'll stop at their house. And the, and we say, do you have any sunglasses? And they go, yeah, we do. They're right here. <laughs> and she did that with a, with a dolly that she left at somebody's house for a very long time. And we called them up. Oh, yeah, we've got it. <laughs> How do people just tell you, hey, we have your sunglasses? Yeah, it might be useful. So before we get started, we want to let you know that today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash protagonist. They have over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, uh, Android, Kindle, or if you're going old school, your MP3 player. Sounds like quite the deal. Yes. Today, we are going to be talking about Jack Burton in the 1986 film Big Trouble in Little China. Jack Burton is played by Kurt Russell, and the film is directed by John Carpenter. And this topic was bought by listener John, who became a patron for our podcast. And again, for $5 a month, you can choose any topic for us to discuss in an episode of the Protagonist Podcast. And listener John says that he feels it is a great deal that for a low price of only $5, I can get two published, intelligent, and entertaining individuals to talk about whatever I want for an hour. So, thank you for the compliment. There, I will tell you, that this is that's the only way that this film was going to make it onto this podcast. <laughs> and, and he bought that through what website? Patreon.com slash protagonist is where you can go to become a patron to help us out a little bit uh, to keep the lights on and the web hosting fees paid. Yeah, I would say help us out, out a lot of it. Yes. So, uh, Todd... <laughs> How did you come to the film? Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> so I have one memory of Big, Big Trouble in Little China from when I was young. I must have been at somebody's house and and the TV was on. And I remember this scene of a guy in an elevator with a woman with lots of lipstick. And they kiss. And then he comes out of the elevator and he has lipstick all over his face. <laughs> and he's carrying this, like, you know, Uzi. <laughs> And I was like, that looks like the strangest movie. And I'm sure that my parents would not want me to watch that movie. <laughs> and so I, I don't even, I, I had it like personally forbidden for myself for like, <laughs> like, like it was, I blacklisted it on my own when I was a kid and was never interested in watching it um, until John requested it. 
and uh, I've seen it twice in the last few weeks, and uh, I'll have some things to say about it later. <laughs> I had never seen it, though it's kind of a cult classic. Uh, usually we do trivia first, and I just skipped that part in the script, so I'll come back and talk some about the trivia in a moment. But I was aware of it because of that cult status, and also because I've seen the image of Kurt Russell in his tank top. And jeans his boots, and boots. Are really. <laughs> I will say that his boots are maybe my favorite part of this film. <laughs> and his and his '80s hair and the gun. Uh, I mean the the like movie poster and some of the imagery from this film has become something that you can easily find on T-shirts and other paraphernalia. Um, it's kind of representative of 1980s cinema. And so I had never actually seen it until uh, listener John uh, requested it. So uh, both because this is such an odd film <laughs> and because neither of us had ever watched it, it's unlikely this film would have ever <laughs> gotten or, or become a topic for discussion without uh, John becoming a patron. So if there's anything obscure that you want us to talk about, again, you can go to patreon.com slash protagonist and we will definitely talk about it for so it's, an hour. It's funny uh, so thinking about the um, <laughs> like coming to this film. Because for the first, do you remember my reaction when you said, uh, John has requested big trouble in little China. Do you remember what I asked you? I said, is it, I said, is it family friendly? And in my mind, I had this thought, like, there is no way that movie is family friendly only because of this experience that I had had as a child <laughs> where, where, where I blacklisted it, it to myself. Because of a kiss. <laughs> Because, because of a kiss, of kiss in an elevator. In an elevator. <laughs> and then I thought, as soon as you said that, like brought back all these emotions, like, there's no way we can talk about that on a podcast. It's, it's a horrible film. <laughs> and then I watched it and I thought, it is a horrible film, but not because, not because it's inappropriate, <laughs> just because it's a horrible film. But uh, we'll get into that later. Yeah. Well, uh, amongst the trivia that I had is the fact that this has obtained cult classic status kind of for the so bad that it's good, that it's uh, enjoyable to watch and kind of chuckle at some of the the random events <laughs> that occur. And there are, yes. are quite a few yeah. random events that occur in this film. And um, it, unsurprisingly, I guess, based on your initial assessment there, it was a flop. <laughs> <laughs> the box what a office. shock. <laughs> but... Uh, I mean, we've already talked about a couple other films that were flops at, box, at the box office that became hits, like Princess Bride. Um, but there's also, I mean, I said I was kind of aware of this because the image of Kurt Russell has kind of become something you can easily see, and and that that odd costuming choice is become uh, somewhat famous. But there there are so many films that are flops at the box office that make zero dent into you know future yeah. popular culture twenty years on, where you'd even have. You have no awareness that this even came out five years ago or anything like that. So I think it's really interesting that it has, uh, you know, remained, you know, not super relevant. I mean, there's no theme parks after this or anything. There's no no sequels, but it still retains a presence, even though. Are you sure there's no sequel? I thought there was. There, there was. There's no sequel. There is a discussion a few years ago. It said there's going to be a remake starring Dwayne Rock Johnson. Oh, that must be what it was. Since that announcement, uh, I haven't heard oh any gosh. more movement on that front. Okay. <laughs> I've heard, uh, <laughs> I think it was Bill Simmons who called Dwayne the Rock Johnson, um, franchise PED. <laughs> if you have a, a franchise that's maybe getting a little older and isn't doing as well, you plug him into the next <laughs> installment and oh it gosh. will do better. So like he got plugged into the GI Joe sequel. He got plugged into fast and the furious kind of later on. In the, in the, I don't think this counts for the mummy films. <laughs> yes. Wow. Okay. All right. So some of the trivia here, John Carpenter was famous. At, well, remains famous. He is an iconic director for doing low budget independent films, often in the horror genre with low budget creature effects, which some of which will show up <laughs> in, in this film. This was his, I'm not sure if it was his first studio film, but several sites that I looked at made quite clear. This was his last <laughs> studio film. And it's not so much because it flopped, but because he hated the experience of working within a wow. studio system. And I'm assuming uh, notes and other things where he didn't have full creative control. Uh, it did. I, I did also find out that he had long wanted to make a martial arts film, and this was his chance to kind of get that bug out of his system. <laughs> there are a number of martial arts scenes, uh, some of which come out of nowhere, <laughs> some of which happen organically. <laughs> Um, our producer, Andrew, found this bit of trivia. The body count for the film is 46. <laughs> there are 46 deaths that are handled with zero remorse by anyone. Yeah. 
it's 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 kind of strange because on on one level, I mean, forty six is, I think, not anything to you know. It, it's significant. <laughs> forty six is a significant yes. body count. It's also essentially bloodless. But but sometimes I don't know, like my, uh, disturbing. I don't know. It's a str- I I have a really. I don't know. Uh, this, I'll just say it right now. This is not my favorite movie. It's uh, Star Wars: The Force Awakens is firmly. <laughs> it's holding on strong, even after having watched uh, Big Trouble in Little China. It still it still stands firm as the, my favorite movie right now. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't put this on a list of. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> I don't even know uh... what to say. It's just an odd mix. There's a very odd mix of genre mashing, um, which is a really postmodern thing to do. And sometimes I love that. It's not successful, but I, again, I think that's some of why this has a cult status of being bad uh, and, and at times laughable in the absurd ways that different genres are getting thrown together. You have kind of a Western motif going with the way he's kind of a cowboy figure. You have martial arts. You have creature and horror that all get thrown together into I an I will say mix. this is the number one strangest movie that I have seen in a very, very long time. So it is at the top of that list. <laughs> um, some other trivia that I found, this was originally conceived and the first script for it was as a Western set in like the 1870s old West, which some beats of the film make more sense. If you have them in Western <laughs> trappings, not necessarily a lot more sense. <laughs> uh, when we, when I go sense, through the long synopsis, updated. I would like for you to tell me what parts of this film make more sense in Western trappings. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and our listener, John, who uh, sponsored this episode, he sent along uh, a couple bits of trivia, such as um, John Carpenter's band, the, the director's band, did the title song. <laughs> <laughs> and he included a link for the music video for that title song, and we will have that up for you in the I thought you were going to say John Carpenter was banned. Like... <laughs> oh no <laughs> no no <laughs> i mean he didn't work for the studio again but before you move on i have further details on the body count okay according to uh moviebodycounts.com <laughs> of course <laughs> <laughs> i didn't know that site existed it's a go-to source but it has... thank you internet <laughs> yeah uh fun fun fact uh 46 is more bodies than the taken Wow. Oh, wow. <laughs> which is which is impressive because you think a lot of people die in that movie. But apparently those only count if you hear the neck snap. Oh jeez. <laughs> Otherwise they might just be unconscious. <laughs> yes. So Liam Neeson may have just beat people unconscious. But uh he he has a breakdown scene by scene. Battle 24. Underwater 6. Random 1. More randomness 3. <laughs> Final battle 12. <laughs> I don't know what any of that means. Well, wait for the long synopsis. It will all become clear. It, have you seen this, Andrew? I, I didn't watch it, no. no. Oh, man. You're in for a treat. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, also from our listener, John. Uh, so I mentioned John Carp- Carpenter's band did the title song. The other band members are uh, the second unit director of the film <laughs> and the guy who played Mike Myers in Halloween. <laughs> and apparently oh, that guy gosh. also wrote, Hook, Escape from New York, and August Rush. That's amazing. <laughs> yes. um, That's a really fantastic and, piece of oh, trivia, John. Thank you. There's an opening scene that feels a little tagged on. It's a framing device that doesn't get revisited at the end of the film, so it, it feels a <laughs> bit out of place. And apparently, this is, again, some trivia from our listener, John, that was requested by the studio. And in that framing device, there's a lawyer who actually becomes only the second white male to have a speaking part in the entire film. <laughs> he and Kurt Russell as Jack Burton are the only white males that speak in the movie. Which seems like some kind of victory for diversity, but after you watch this film... Uh... <laughs> there are... Well, in my notes for, for discussion after you do your full synopsis, I have a section that's called Stereotypes, Yellow, <laughs> yellow Peril, and uh, Oriental Mysticism. Yes. Yeah. So we may have some discussion about that. Okay. All right. Well, if you're, if you're wondering what this film is about, after the scattered bits of trivia that you've been given, there's a man named Jack Burton, who is a trucker. He's uh, in, the, in the 1980s. He just drives his semi-truck around. And he's in Chinatown visiting a friend, and that friend owes him money, and they go to collect that money that he's owed. 
At which point, Jack gets pulled into a crazy world with magic and monsters and uh, pseudo-gods and lots of other oddness. And Jack is uh, a reluctant hero in this adventure. So if that sounds interesting, you can find this uh, streaming on Netflix. It is streaming on Amazon Prime, or you could purchase it uh, on DVD. And uh, speaking of Amazon Prime, we are now affiliated with Amazon, and we have a special webpage you can go to. It's protagonistpodcast.com slash deals. And if you go there, there are all kinds of sweet deals. Um, the deal that we're highlighting this week is 30 days uh, free of Amazon Prime. If you go and sign up through that website, uh, protagonistpodcast.com slash deals, then you'll be supporting the show and getting yourself a free a 30 days of Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime, I love Amazon Prime uh, because you get free shipping on anything you buy through Amazon, which actually adds up to lots of savings. Uh, and you also get a great music service, and you also get uh, a great movie service. So sort of like Netflix, but you get free sh- – you, you're like getting paid back uh, for it. I, I think it's a really great service. So, And if you are going to buy anything from Amazon to enjoy that free shipping, you can go to what website, Todd? protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And if you do that, it will cost you nothing extra, but we get a tiny percentage of the sales that Amazon is getting. So it takes a little bit out of Amazon's pocket and puts it into ours again to help with web hosting and other costs associated with this podcast. So if you could make that your Amazon link, we would greatly appreciate it. Let's bookmark it. All right, Todd, you want to tell our listeners about the entire plot of Big Trouble in Little China? I have been looking forward to this for weeks before before you do i want you to know that based on joseph's description i'm looking for corollaries to alice in wonderland i I, yeah this does follow the hero's journey it is a weird (laughs) mishmash of many genres but But it follows the hero's hero's journey pretty darn closely okay i'll do my best and uh, listener john i i i'm grateful for your support for the show (laughs) um I will try to do my best to give this film its uh, a, a worthy a worthy review, <laughs> uh, a worthy synopsis. So here we go. This film begins in the office of a lawyer who is asking some questions of an old Chinese man named Egg Shen. The lawyer tells Shen that half of a city block was blown up in a ball of green flame and that he needs to know where Jack Burton is. He asks Egg Shen if he believes in magic and monsters and ghosts and sorcery. Eggshen affirms. The lawyer asks, how can I believe? Then, Egg- there are a lot of things in this synopsis that I am going to have a hard time describing to you, and this is only the first of many. Eggshen holds up his hands and blue electricity, so think like uh, the Emperor in, uh, in uh, Return of the Jedi, that kind of electricity runs in between his hands. And he tells the lawyer, that was nothing, and that's how it always begins, very small. Then this, uh, then this cool 80s music starts up. And we cut to a semi-truck, and Kurt Russell is driving the truck, and he's talking into the radio. And he says, this is Jack Burton in the Pork Chop Express, and I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. Like I told my last wife, I says, honey, I never drive faster than I can see. Besides that, it's all in the reflexes. When some wild eight-foot-tall maniac grabs your neck and taps the back of your favorite head up against the barroom wall, and he looks you crooked in the eye, and he asks if you paid your dues, you just stare that big sucker right back in the eye, and you remember what old Jack Burton always says at a time like that. Have you paid your dues, Jack? Yes, sir. The check is in the mail. (laughs) That was a a pretty good uh, impression of Kurt Russell's performance there. Jack drives into Chinatown in San Francisco, and he leaves his cargo, and, uh, and he wins some money in a card game against his friend Wang. But Wang can't pay him back because he has to go to the airport first. Uh, so Jack says, I'll take you to the airport. So they're going to pick up a girl there, uh, Jack finds out. It's Wang's fiance. At the airport, Jack sees a beautiful blonde woman. Uh, Wang tells him that this woman is trouble. Jack tries very unsuccessfully to flirt with her. <laughs> Then some Chinese gangsters called the Lords of Death Street Gang show up and they kidnap Wang's fiance Yao Min. By the way, name for a street gang, Lords of Death. That's a strong (laughs) calling card. You're making a statement when you choose that as the name of your street gang. Yes, absolutely. So the Lords of Death Street Gang show up and they kidnap Wang's fiance Yao Min. Uh, Jack and Wang run after them while the blonde woman runs off with another Chinese girl. 
Jack and Wang chase the gangsters into a parking lot, but they get out, they get away. So Jack and Wang drive around looking for them, and they drive down a really tight alley, and they're still in ja- uh, Jack's semi truck. Uh, so they're sitting in this semi truck and then this parade comes down the street. It's a funeral put on by a group called the fighting Tong. These are the good guys. Then a different group called the wing Kong. They're the bad guys. They come and they attack the fighting Tong. And, uh, there's a huge street ball in which many of the 46, uh, people <laughs> that die in this film, uh, perish. I think it's 24 of them. <laughs> And this uh, is this is just an all out it almost feels like a nineteen seventies martial arts film. Like this is just so martial weird. arts fighting for the sake of martial arts fighting. Uh, there's guns, there are swords that look like they're made out of tinfoil. <laughs> um lots of flying kicks. Lots of yeah, people people jumping and flying uh, kicks. There it, it's very strange. Uh, so there's a huge street brawl. <laughs> Jack and Wang are just sitting in their truck in the middle of the fighting. Well, they're it's just, just the cab everything. of the semi-truck is in the middle of the street. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're just sort of stuck there. Then these three crazy wizards with giant hats show up, Chinese wizards. Uh, one of them is wielding electricity. They appear to be invulnerable to bullets and other forms of violence. They attack the good guys and they kill a whole bunch of them. Uh, then Wang says, get out of there. And then Jack starts driving and he runs over another guy called Lo Pan who shoots light out of his eyes and put temporarily blinds, uh, Jack, uh, Jack and, uh, and Wang, they get out of the truck. They're temporarily blinded. They run, uh, through into a different alleyway. They run into the Lords of death and then they run away again. Lots of running. Yes. Lots of running away. They get chased again. Then they run away again. Uh, they go to Wang's uncle's restaurant and they meet a guy called Eddie Lee. He tells Jack that the Lords of Death stole his truck. Then the blonde la- lawyer, the blonde lawyer lady from the airport, she shows up, and her name is Gracie Law. And Jack finds out that see if this feels disjointed to you, it's not because of poor writing on my part. I just I, want, I have to I have to add that because people might think that I don't know how to tell a story. Uh, Jack finds out that Lopan is immortal. Wang asks him to help him get his fiance back from the Wing Kong, who are her, are holding her in a brothel. Jack has to go in because he won't be recognized. Oh, God, this is one where, like, the visit to the brothel, that's a classic trope of the Western genre. So that's one moment that would, okay. wouldn't be unexpected in a Western. Okay, there's a difference between wouldn't be unexpected in a Western and this plot makes more sense if it's <laughs> if it's in the trappings of a Western. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying. So, uh, let's see. Where was I? Uh, brothel, yes. <laughs> Uh, Jack has to go in because he won't be recognized, and apparently all of these other people will be recognized in the Chinese brothel in Chinatown. Uh, he requests to see a woman with green eyes. So the, the most uh, distinguishing characteristic of Yao Min is that she has green eyes. Uh, then the building starts to shake, and huge green fire shows up above the building. The three wizards show up again. Jack punches one of them with no results. Then he gets pummeled. The wizards take Yao Min, or Mao Yin, Mao Yin. And the, they, 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 they kidnap her, the girl with the green eyes. Who was already uh, kidnapped. Who was already kidnapped. Now she's been doubly kidnapped by the bad guys. Apparently they Twice. stole. <laughs> Wait, yeah, so, the, so the Lords of Death weren't the bad guys? I was wondering if this was going to make sense when you got there. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let's go with it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I remember when I was watching, I was like, wait, I thought she was already kidnapped by the bad guys. And she was. But yes. different bad guys, yeah. But the same bad – I mean it's like like the uh, the Lords of Death are, are like the JV squad of <laughs> these bad guys. And so they, basically the varsity team came and stole her from the JV team Okay, is the way I understand it. Uh, Jack and his friends go back to Gracie's office. She tells Jack that Lo Pan has taken Mao Yin. Uh, Wang says he's going to the Wing Kong Exchange, which is like their headquarters. Uh, to get her back. And Jack says, we'll go together. So they just waltz into the front doors of this place, posing as phone company people. And then they just walk right <laughs> past the guards. And wander around pretty freely. And they w- wander around uh, trying to find a you know secret door into the, into the main lair. Back at the restaurant, Egg Shen has shown up. The Egg Shen is the guy from the beginning that, with the electricity. Uh, and he's doing some kind of uh, incantations. It turns out he's a local authority on Lopan. Lopan is the main bad guy. He's the guy that was run over by Jack's semi-truck, but, uh, but unharmed, that then blinded him by shooting light out of his eyes. That's that. This is this guy, Lopan. Yeah. David Lopan. <laughs> I do have to say, uh, Lopan, 
there's some awkward dialogue in this film. Uh, really? A, some expository uh, stream of consciousness that just kind of fills the audience in. And I think my favorite <laughs> one is about Lopan, where one of the characters says his name, and then another character goes, you mean Lopan, who is this? Yes. You know, and they say, like, the business leader who does, you know, these X number of things and has been living in the city for this long and owns this many businesses. And then it was like, yes, that Lopan is yeah. really a mystic. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty bad. There are there are some really great quotes in this film. There's also some really bad yes. dialogue, and there are some. I think there are some legitimately funny parts where like the comedy is firing on the cylinders, and there are some parts where you laugh because this just isn't working. Okay. So Jack and Wang back in the uh, Wing Kong Exchange, they find a secret elevator that takes them down. Now back in the restaurant, Egg Shen and Wang's uncle tell Gracie that Lopan is a cursed being and that he has vast, dark, destructive power. Back in the Wing Kong Exchange, the elevator stops, and then it starts to fill up with water. And uh, they force the doors open, and they swim out, but they get captured by the three wizards, who are we, uh, we have found out now that they are called the Three Storms. So Jack and Wang get blindfolded and tied into wheelchairs, yes, wheelchairs, and wheeled in to see Lopan, who now looks like a very, 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 very old man. This is uh, he's not also the, in a wheelchair. The mystic guy we saw on the street earlier. So as I think about this, it, he looks a lot like um, the guy at the beginning of uh, Inception. This yeah. very old Asian man. Mm-hmm. Uh, he tells Jack that he is Lopan. And Jack says, no, you're not Lopan. Lopan is the guy that I ran over. Because the Lopan that we've seen up until now is this, like, seven-foot-tall, big, strong guy. And this is this very old man in a wheelchair. But apparently they're one and the same. Uh, So he tells Jack he is Lopan and that he only needs a woman with green eyes to be freed from his prison. And he has to appease a a god called Qingdai. Eddie Grace and the journalist now show up at the Wing Kong Exchange. They're concerned about uh, Jack and Wang, who have been taking too long. So Jack and Wang get wheeled into a room and then locked in. Uh, Jack knocks his chair over. He removes the blindfold, pulls a knife out of his boot, and cuts his bonds free. Then one of the wizards in another part of the Wing Kong Exchange uh, captures Gracie and her friends. Now Jack and Wang pretend to be back in their chairs with their blindfolds on, even though now their, their bonds have been cut. And... Uh, and one of the storms brings Eddie Lee in to this place, this sort of uh, prison place where they're keeping uh, Jack and Wang in their wheelchairs. Uh, and they all escape when Jack rolls out of the room backwards in his wheelchair. And then they get some guns from the, from the guards. <laughs> yeah, I just don't, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah, uh, yeah there's, it's kind of like a half fight, and then Jack's is rolling out, and then they lock the door behind him. And the, the bad guy's stuck in the room. Okay, now there's a huge fight. And they free a bunch of girls that are locked in cages. Uh, and this is where Gracie and her friend Margot, who is a journalist, uh, they, uh, they get freed. And they all escape underwater. Now there's a bunch more fighting, and they all escape out the front door. Uh, so, so they escape from one place underwater. Then they get caught again. Then they fight again. Then they go out through the front door. But Gracie, unbeknownst <laughs> to Jack and the others, has been captured by a giant monster. Now... Uh, maybe you can help me, Joseph, to describe this monster, but okay. I'm thinking like a combination of Sasquatch meets Alien. Sort of. I, it's kind of like a live-action version of the Bigfoot from a Goofy movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's sort of an orangish version of the Abominable Snowman yeah, from yeah. the... Uh, oh, well, the Bigfoot in a Goofy movie is orange. Orange okay, is orange. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, but the way the seed works... I, we're running through the summary. I think that's pretty literal yeah, no, use no, of the term, the way this scene works. <laughs> well, I was going to say, you, you know, you say, like, unbeknownst to them, she's grabbed, and the audience might not, our listeners might not understand how random this moment is, <laughs> where they are marching out, single file line through a hallway, and she looks over and sees a big door, and she, like, looks at it, and then the door opens, and a big orange hairy arm reaches out and grabs her. <laughs> she was the last in the line. Yes. And that is all. <laughs> That the audience gets at this so, moment. <laughs> so Jack and Wang are now back out of the of the Wing Kong Exchange. They've escaped, but they not only have they not gotten Mao Yin, they also have now lost Gracie. So they gather up all of Egg Shen's troops from these fighting Tong guys, and they decide to go back in. Egg Shen knows about a back door, so now they don't have to go through the front door. They can go through this back door. Now Gracie, inside of the Wing Kong Exchange, is confronted by Lo Pan. Uh, she's hypnotized and prepared, along with Mao Yin, for a wedding ceremony. So apparently to break the spell, 
uh, Lo Pan has to marry a woman with green eyes. Uh, Egg Shen. No, <laughs> I, I want to put out Lo Pan, ancient being, and this curse of having to marry a woman with green eyes has been a lot of trouble for him. Because green-eyed women are not terribly common in China. And so this, this is... It's been like 2,000 years. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and he's been unable to get whoa, his hands whoa. on a green-eyed woman. But now, okay, they're in Chinatown, in America. And, <laughs> now he has two green-eyed women. And one of them is a white woman who has green eyes. You'd think he could have found another woman with green eyes once he left China. Over the course of 2,000 years. <laughs> yeah, like I understand why he had trouble in China, where again, that's not a terribly common eye color. And Wang's fiance is famous. Everyone notes that she, that she has green eyes. But now that he's in America, I think he could have found a green-eyed woman a little more easily. He has the Lords of Death Street Gang as his JV squad. Like you think that, <laughs> like just go keep your eyes open. Unbelievable. I mean, they have to, they're waiting for Mao Yin to come and get off the airplane so they can steal her. And Gracie's sitting right, like they're in an airport full of people with green eyes. Unbelievable. Anyway. Egg Shen gives Jack and Wang a magic potion that will give them strength. Jack, Wang, Egg Shen, and the others break in on the wedding ceremony. Uh, but they can't kill Lo Pan until the wedding ceremony is complete because, because completing the wedding ceremony will make him be flesh and blood again. Now things get really weird. Yeah, this has been all set up. <laughs> well, okay, you, I, I'm not blaming you. This has been a great story so far. But you haven't mentioned the, uh, the tentacly creature. Hey, don't don't steal my thunder. Oh, I thought that Next came before, paragraph. I, I, thought, I thought it was already... I thought you saw it before the wedding. I'm sorry. Next go, paragraph. Go a weird, multi-eyed monster. So it, imagine a head with lots of eyes on it and tentacles... But no body. ...sticking out of it, but no body. A weird, multi-eyed monster sees uh, Jack and his friends, and he alerts Lo Pan. So <laughs> the Jack... Takes a Zuzi, and he shoots the ceiling. Like, just to draw attention to that, hey, the good guys are here now. And all these rocks fall on his head, and they knock him out, and he's unconscious for the rest of this fight. <laughs> and there's this huge fight, uh, and now Wang has magical powers, because it, presumably from this potion that he's taken, so now he can kind of hold his own against the three storms. So there are all these, this is crazy... Uh, um, imagine like well, think, the, think, the very um, worst version cra- of Crouching Tiger, <laughs> yes, Hidden Dragon say, possible. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, without any of the uh, artistry. 15 years of technical development that made that film possible. <laughs> uh, so, anyway, they have this huge fight. Lopan escapes with Mao Yin, and uh, Wang goes after him. Then Jack and Gracie go after them as well. Now, this is the part that uh, that scarred me as a child. Jack and Gracie are in an elevator, and they kiss, and this covers Jack's mouth with lipstick. This is an insane amount of lipstick. <laughs> this all is one of the... bright red all over his mouth. I, I said there are some parts of this film that are genuinely funny, and this, him going out to fight and having this red lipstick all over his face made me laugh, like, legitimately, and it was deliberate on the filmmaker's part to have this as comedy. Okay. So Jack and Wang, uh, they fight with another of the three storms, and then Jack... <laughs> Kills Lopan with what I will call a well-placed knife throw. <laughs> uh, and then he looks at Gracie and says, it's all in the reflexes. All of this happens with lipstick all still on his face. So they have this huge fight. He kills Lopan, and, and then he looks at her and says, it's all in the reflexes. And he's got this lipstick all over his face. More fighting, more fighting. They finally get away in Jack's car. I mean, his truck. Uh, and now epilogue. They go back to Wang's uncle's restaurant. Egg Shen sneaks off. He says his work is done. And Jack leaves Gracie without even a kiss goodbye. He just says goodbye. And uh, uh, Margo says... This is another says, moment that I think... Well, aren't you even going to kiss her? And he goes, no. <laughs> and then he just walks off. The film say, ends... Oh, go ahead. That's a moment that feels like a Western as well. Like he's, he's done his good deed and now he's walking off into the sunset. Yeah, I believe uh, f- feels like a Western. I, I still... Uh, I don't know. <laughs> the film ends with Jack Burton driving the Port Shop Express, which is the name of his uh, his semi truck, on a dark and stormy night, talking to whoever's listening, and he says, "Just remember what old Jack Burton does when the earth quakes and the poison arrows fall from the sky and the pillars of heaven shake. Yeah, Jack Burton just looks that big old storm right square in the eye, and he says, "Give me your best shot, pal. I can take it." Then the camera pans backwards, and we see Lopan's abominable snowman monster climbing on the back of Jack's truck. The end. That's it. 
Thank you, Todd. I think you did it justice. <sighs> you okay there, Andrew? <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure Andrew yeah. hadn't seen this film. Uh, that's his, his exposure to it. Same uh, as, I'm assuming many of our listeners. <laughs> I did my best. I really did. <laughs> no, you I don't, I don't also in favor of this originally being a western. When you ever you were imitating Kurt Russell's line delivery, there was definitely a John Wayne inflection mm. going. Well, on. and he's definitely going for that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, Joseph, you told me a great line from this movie <laughs> yes. about why they don't go to the cops. Yeah. So, so we've mentioned a lot of the the media that we've covered, the stories we've covered. Uh, this got mentioned explicitly in Blink where there's a guy yelling at a TV because he's watching a movie saying, why don't you go to the police? And so there's this question in this where, like, there's all this... There was just a crazy street brawl with dozens of deaths in it, and so why don't you go to the police? And Jack Burton, who... This line would work if, like, he was a Navy SEAL or... You know, someone with any skills. But he's just a truck driver. But they say, why don't we go to the authorities? And his response is, the police have better things to do than die. (laughs) 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 Or something along those lines. Which, again, like, if he had a skill set to go take care of this problem, I think that would be a pretty awesome line. It it sounds like a good line. (laughs) Yeah. But I haven't seen the movie. But uh, as a a semi-truck driver, (laughs) I don't know that he's really prepared to go in and save the day. Yeah. I mean, he, he he has an he has an interesting skill set. I will say. Um, I mean, he has that knife tucked in his boot. He <laughs> seems to have fairly good reflexes. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, uh, you he, know, he's he, not he afraid went, of a fight. He never he, drives faster than he can see, and he trusts his reflexes for the rest. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's so, like I told my ex-wife. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I asked our listener, John, if he had any thoughts that he wanted to make sure, or, you know, topics he wanted to make sure he cover, uh, we cover on this. And he sent us a few notes. And one of them is, I love Jack as a character because he's so much more fallible than the typical hero. Even though he's billed as the hero, and he clearly thinks himself as of, of himself as the hero, he is really more of a sidekick along for a ride. I think I read once that his character is supposed to be a play on old John Wayne characters, even though he doesn't really carry the day for the way that John Wayne often did. And so you're saying, like, yeah, he does have these uh, the skills that show up in moments, but then also he, he not himself out of the most important fight <laughs> at the end when he shoots the ceiling which again legitimately funny moment when he falls unconscious yeah and uh also during an earlier fight with him and wang uh jack loses his knife and while he's scrambling to go get it wang is doing all this crazy martial arts and he takes out like five of the bad guys and then jack comes running back in with his knife and like crouched ready to fight and the fight <laughs> is over um and I'm, uh, I'm just looking at I'm looking at this list of uh, quotes from this film. There are uh, quite a number of <laughs> really, really funny things that are that are said. Okay, you people sit tight, hold the fort, and keep the home fires burning. And if we're not back by dawn, call the president. <laughs> <laughs> Gracie says. Gracie's when when uh, when Jack and Wang are going to go into the Wing Kong exp- uh, the exchange, uh, she says, "I'd go with you, but," and he goes, "I know there's a problem with your face." <laughs> I think maybe, one of my favorite. I'm a reason. I'm a reasonable guy, but I've just experienced some very unreasonable things. It's <laughs> a really good one. Yeah, it's it's uh, like I said. It's the strangest movie I have seen in a very long time. I'm, I'm interested in uh, g- kind of digging into this character. <laughs> we've spent, I, I feel like we've spent a lot of time on the setup for this. Yes. I, I, like you, you have less time than usual, I think, to dig into him. All right. Well, I also, d- there's one moment, though, that I think kind of encapsulates both his competence and incompetence that he uh-huh. displays simultaneously. It, it's after he's woken up in the final fight. There's this giant armored uh, warrior that's coming after him. And Jack, he, he's got these, these cowboy boots, and he keeps a knife in there, and he gets the, the knife sticking up out of his boot, and on his back he reaches up and he kicks, the, like the guy's coming for him, and he, reaches, he kicks up with the knife out sticking out of his boot and stabs the guy. But then the guy falls on top of him. <laughs> and then he's just, like, stuck there. <laughs> he's stuck there on his back <laughs> with his legs up, kind of barely keeping the guy off of him who's, who's dying and laying on top of him. <laughs> And that, I think, is a good encapsulation of him, though, where he can kind of get the job done, but he might not do it in the best way possible, and he might kind of take himself out of commission in the process. Okay, real quick, I want, like, your fast reactions on agent or not agent for him. Because he doesn't, like, he's not 
agentively putting himself into this situation, is he? Yeah, I, I totally. Com- he's a total force of nature. I mean, he he's a, he's a he's an agent. Is he? Yeah. Well, like he chooses yeah, to go in. Yeah. Okay. Like he when yes, he says, he gets "I gotta captured. go get, I gotta go get Mao Yin," and uh, but like and, he's, he's all in this because he won a game of cards yeah. and <laughs> wants his money. Yes. <laughs> but, but there's there's a point in the film where where he could walk away. Oh, okay. He could totally walk away. It's not just that and, he's been captured uh, and is in this, you know, chaos Wang says, you don't, I, I can't ask you to come with me. And he goes, forget it, Wang, I'm coming with you. And he's like, thanks, Jack. You know, and th- <laughs> so is, he's is in this just because he's in him? it. It's just, it's, it's, it's strange. Well, yeah, yeah, it's strange. Um, yeah, he's not. Like, he doesn't sound like he's always an asset. No. <laughs> like, like maybe no, but there's of, a difference between of, being an asset and making, you and know, being an agent and yeah. being an agent. Yeah. He's just, he's a really strange character. Okay. Um, he, he is. And, and it's, there's this weird kind of parody that he's doing on like the typical hero. The John Wayne kind of man. So man there's a hero. G- yeah. There's a John Wayne kind of sense about him, but there's also kind of the, uh, the Indiana Jones, um, which is, isn't surprising, this came out in the eighties. But the uh, the Indiana Jones who, when there's craziness going around, will pull out his gun and just shoot the guy <laughs> instead uh-huh. of engaging in the fair fight, like that side of Indiana Jones. Uh huh. So I, I don't know. Like I, I've I've been thinking about this for a while now. We've known that we were going to do this, and the first time I saw this was probably a month ago, and then I watched it again a couple weeks ago, and. I just like I'm trying I'm I'm mulling this this character over in my head and I'm thinking like what is this is this parody cuz sometimes it is and sometimes it's it's not and like what what about him is heroic cuz there are moments where he seems you know like legitimately like he's doing the right thing like he's an agent and he's 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 sticking up for his friend, and he seems brave, and he does things that seem kind of brave, and he's trying to help these these people. But then at other times, he just is totally incompetent, <laughs> and uh, he just is all over the map. He's really hard for me as a character to pin down and say this is this is who this is. And I mean, if we're, I, I'm probably reading way too much uh, into the thought behind this film, but it does open with that scene from the studio, which or from the, from the lawyer's office where they're saying like, where is Jack Burton? And that's kind of the question for me is like, who, who is Jack Burton? Because it still, after watching this film, I, I have no sense of like who he is as a character. So, uh, listener, John, in sending an email where he kind of talked about some of the points he'd like to discuss. He says, I like that Jack does make a slow shift away from being a selfish loner to actually wanting to help and be willing to accept help from others. At first, he only wanted to collect what Wang owed him and hit on the cute girl at the airport. But uh, as he saw worse injustices going on in the world than his own precious truck getting stolen, he was happy to jump on board and help his friends. Uh, though he also becomes painfully aware of his own lack of knowledge as they journey through the underworld. <laughs> Like he jumps in to help his friends, and he is now crossing a threshold. <laughs> he is like in so far over his head, but somehow he kind of manages to come on top. That actually, it, it, that is, I think it's a really insightful comment by John, and um, and I like I buy it. I mean, I think that he does change as a character uh, over the course of this thing. Although he starts and ends basically in the same place, doing exactly the same thing um, in his truck talking to whoever's out there listening. <laughs> so strange. I'm sorry. I know I've said that probably a thousand times tonight, but it, it is, it is the one feeling that I just can't shake. Watching this. this is such a strange movie. All right. So we teased this earlier. I think we need to address it. There are uh, some stereotypes that get used within oh, this man. film. And also I found when I was looking up trivia about this film, it is also credited with creating one stereotype about Asian culture, which is the oversized straw hat wearing mystic. Really? <laughs> yeah. So which is, uh, gets used in like mortal Kombat. There's, uh, an Asian character that, that fits that. And they credit this film with being kind of the first instance of combining a couple other Asian stereotypes into a new, kind of Asian stereotype. Well done. <laughs> yes. Um, and I mentioned specifically, there is 
an Asian stereotype that is called the Fu Manchu uh, villain that is representative of something called the Yellow Peril, and very much Lopan <laughs> falls <laughs> under this. We now know Fu Manchu culturally as the mustache, you know, the long, drooping mustache. Mm-hmm. Um, that is stereotypical of uh, Asian characters in a lot of popular culture. And that goes back to a pulp magazine character who was named Fu Manchu. Fu Manchu. Who had the goal of uh, enslaving the Western world to opium that he was going to control the flow of <laughs> opium. And that character is representative of a larger kind of stereotype, which was called the yellow peril, which is a racist name for a racist stereotype, yeah. which is the fear of the uh, Oriental world taking over the Western world, essentially that there's this threat from this exotic unknown other of uh, the Asian world. And that. Uh, if we allow too many Asian immigrants or Asian businesses to Im- have influence in America specifically is where we see a lot of this. Uh, though there are versions of this that go through a lot of European countries as well, uh, uh-huh. that they are going to infiltrate and then take over our way of life. And, um, you can track a lot of European and America's fears of the other <laughs> through popular culture. And this was one that was really quite prevalent in the turn of the 20th century, so the early 1900s. So, so question that I have for you is, um, in a film like this that I, I think is not meant to be taken seriously, do, are we, how are we supposed to read the obvious, like, blatant stereotypes right. so, throughout this film? So, do we read this as, as parody? Where they're saying, look at, look at what films do, how they stereotype Asian people and look at how ridiculous that is. Or are they just trying to make a funny movie and they've, and they happen to buy, like buy into this Mm -hmm. stereotype themselves? So I think this film is heavily drawing on pulp tradition and, and, you know, pulp narrative. And I think they're both embracing and tweaking that. Uh, you know, that, that style of storytelling that uh, when we say pulp, it's referencing pulp magazines, which were kind of the, the next wave of popular culture after dime novels. So dime novels are considered kind of the first mass produced entertainment in America. Uh-huh. And then, um, solely because of a change in the postal code <laughs> where so shipping books became more expensive than shipping magazines, a lot of dime novel <laughs> producers started to make magazines that were the same it was just a different size, <laughs> uh, but uh-huh. it said content that had been dime novels, but it, the, the material, the, these people were mass producing entertainment at the cheapest way possible. And the paper was so cheap. You could actually see wood pulp inside of it. So they got called, <laughs> they were called pulp magazines. And this is where a lot of the early kind of adventure, uh, formula for American entertainment started to get, um, you know, codified. And a lot of the genres that we know sure. were formed there. And this film is heavily lifting from that in the same way that Indiana Jones films did, uh, you know, lots of, um, films in the eighties, uh, feature filmmakers kind of looking back fondly on that kind of entertainment uh-huh. and reimagining it or just lifting it outright and using it. <laughs> and this film I think is doing both. Um, so it has some of these problematic Asian stereotypes, but, in some ways it shifts it around because it's not, I mean, Jack is kind of, uh, I mean, another stereotype that we have of the white savior, you know, the white man who goes right. in to fix the problems somewhere else. But at the same time, as we've said, <laughs> Wang does a lot more <laughs> in these fights and to save the day than Jack actually does. But Jack gets the final kill. Yeah, he does. Um, and that's, this is why it's really hard for me to like pin him down because he has all these moments. The same guy that shoots the Uzi up into the rocks and then they fall on him and knocks him out is the same guy that in this somehow miraculous way, uh, Lopan throws the knife and Jack catches it and flicks it back in at midair him. and flicks it back <laughs> like and hits w- it right between the eyes. <laughs> and then he says, it's all in the reflexes. And it's like, what just happened? <laughs> this is so. Like it does, it just doesn't. It doesn't make any so, sense to so me. Would, it's hard for me to read this, and and sometimes, sometimes I read ambiguity, and I'm like, oh, it's cool, it's ambiguous, and there's not really a clear answer. And sometimes I read ambiguity, and I just see like confusion. Yeah, and this um, feels far more confusing than intentionally ambiguous. So that moment where Jack does that with the knife throw, do you think it's from whatever magical potion Egg gave them? Yes, absolutely. So Jack wouldn't have been able to do that without the aid. 
of, again, some Asian mysticism, which right. is another stereotype. But uh, <laughs> Wang wouldn't have been able to fight against the storms if he hadn't had the, the thing either. Right. Now, uh, <laughs> I, I like it when they're in the elevator and, and they've just <laughs> drank the potion. And he's like, yeah, I feel good. I'm like, I'm, I'm not even scared at all or anything. <laughs> yes. Just, yeah. It's a pretty funny scene. Uh, but I was going to say... Um, do you think that really was a magical potion? I guess we have to because it was like, but part of it was like, did they just get like a bar's boiler maker where they mix all the alcohols together? <laughs> They're just, getting, <laughs> you know, a shot of confidence. <laughs> I, I think that it has to be a potion of Wang some starts kind. Flying around. Wang starts flying around. What's in the flask egg? Magic potion. Yeah. Thought so. Good. What do we do? <laughs> Drink it. Yeah. Good. Thought so. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dialogue in the script. <laughs> but, so I, I think like that is an example <laughs> of like the, deliberately here's to the army and navy and the battles they have won. Here's to America's colors, the colors that never run. May the wings of liberty never lose a feather. And then they drink, and then they drink the potion. <laughs> oh, I was gonna say that like that that exchange that you just quoted, I think, is an example of deliberately like comedically stilted dialogue. It's yes, yeah, absolutely. But there are other examples where it's like they're just getting exposition out and it's handled awkwardly. And I don't know that it's as deliberate. Like, is that bad writing or is that like tweaking bad writing? <laughs> and, and this is one of those like what you're saying about like the ambiguity of this. Uh, I don't I don't know what tone exactly we're supposed to have in some of these moments. <laughs> Just looking through these quotes, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, you get some more of your John Wayne slash Kurt Russell readings. <laughs> what What does that say? Hell of boiling oil. You're kidding. Yeah, I am. It says keep out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the uh, another one that I like is. Uh, they're they're wandering. It looks like they're looking at a sewer. Like they're about to walk through a sewer. <laughs> and Jack says, "That's not water." And Eggshen says, "Black blood of the earth." Do you mean oil? I mean black blood of the earth. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> like the earth is bleeding right there. That's uh, so. There's these hints at like the the larger whatever like mythology is existing here in Chinatown that don't get fully explained. Which um, I don't mind that. I mean, you're you're talking about like where sometimes ambiguity ambiguity is cool and sometimes it can be frustrating. Sometimes like hinting at things can be cool and sometimes it can be frustrating where you want to explain like uh-huh. things like that. I don't, uh, where it's like, no, it's just the black blood of the earth. Like I don't want that. I'll explain It's kind of cooler as a concept that, uh, you just kind of, you know, you, you say it and you move on. I don't need like a whole explanation of the grand mythology that exists there. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's confusing. It's strange. I think it's problematic in a lot, in a lot of ways. It's also very funny in in some ways. And I I wrote the question here in our outline. Why is this funny, or or like not? And and you wrote you know what are the legitimately funny moments? And we've touched on some of them. So the, John had written it's 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 so bad it's good. And I think that's a really interesting thing to say about a piece a piece of art like. What characterize? I mean, how does how does something become so bad that then a bunch of people say it's really good because it's so bad? Right, like the, where this becomes entertaining, not because of the skill or, or the deliberateness of that entertainment, but that like you, you're kind of like head scratchingly entertained by seeing this, you know, the, the, whatever it is that's before you. Versus films that are just bad and again make no impact on culture, like they just come and go, and yeah. work and. Even the people who made it probably forget about it five years down the line. <laughs> right. I mean, you can think of something like, uh, we talked about Avatar The Last Airbender, the animated series, which is incredible. And then uh, Shyamalan makes a film version of it, and everybody says it's bad. And nobody is saying it's so bad, it's good. Right. Everybody says it's bad, it's terrible. And it's not, like, if anyone remembers it, it's only in connection with the animated series. Right. Like, if that film had come and gone by itself without the animated series that's beloved and, is, you know, is a favorite of a lot of people, um, that would be a film that was released, made X amount of dollars uh, below studio expe- expectations, and is just forgotten. So what's the secret sauce in this film that makes it so that people love it 30 years later? So some of this, I think, maybe John Carpenter... Um, just his reputation as a director and some of the hints of some of his other works that show up in this, like the monsters that show up. That's very John Carpenter, uh, you know, low budget effects in a big budget summer, you know, kind of blockbuster uh-huh. film. I don't, but I don't know. <laughs> it's- I think if I were to, if I were to venture, I guess 
it, it, you know, it's interesting that we say like, oh, look at all the diversity in this film, and and Kurt Russell is the only white person with white male with speaking part, uh, and we and we say like they're maybe subverting the idea of the white savior or something, but he is the savior of this film. Like he is the reason why it's it is as funny as it is in the parts that it is. I think he carries the vast load. Uh, of this uh, in a way, in the way like that, um, Bill Murray carries Ghostbusters. I think mm-hmm. it's just not the same film without him. And I have a hard time imagining this film being the kind of, you know, cult success that it is today without that, without that performance by Kurt Russell, which, which, which is dumb because in the end it's like, he is the great white savior of this film full of Asian people. <laughs> but I just, I don't think that, I I don't know. It's a, that that's what I would say. I'd say it's funny because he's really funny and and he gets all the best lines or most of the best lines, I think. Mm-hmm. And you know, he gets this I don't know. I I think that he 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 carries most of this film on his back. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Uh I I can't name another actor that was in the film or actress. <laughs> the the lawyer, the lawyer, and the reporter. The I think egg. Wang, like Wang? Wang has Wang has some funny yeah. lines, and Egg has, some but funny almost lines. always in in dialogue with uh, Jack. Um, egg Shen has some funny lines. I'm trying to think if they're also all. I mean, if every funny part it has Jack in it, basically. He's on screen most of the time. Uh, there's a moment when they're trying to escape and they can't find a way out, and they look up, and Egg is up high and like lowering a rope down to them. And Jack's uh-huh. like, "How'd you get up there?" And Egg just says, "Wasn't easy." <laughs> <laughs> and that's the explanation for how he got up there. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know. I like I said, not my favorite movie in the world. It really, just strange. And and I I, I mean I'm grateful. Just because it's made me think about a lot of things, but I'm having a really hard time like landing my brain on any on <laughs> and on anything with this. So, uh, final thought here: there's um, a movement in art that's called postmodernism, which is one of those movements that is really hard for people to define. Um, that y- you hear tossed out a lot, um, but when you're asked to define it, like I think if you look up the definition online and you type in postmodernism, the, the first line of the definition is a movement of art that followed modernism. It's like thank yeah. you. <laughs> Um, but one of the key elements of this is um, that traditional genre distinctions don't matter anymore. And you just throw everything into a blender and kind of uh, see what comes out. And there's also a much more overt kind of self-awareness uh, that can take take the form of something like Ferris Bueller, where he talks to the screen and is like making you hyper-aware that you're watching this performance. Uh, or... Um, there's a collection of short stories called The Things They Carried, which is Vietnam War short stories. And, like, there'll be a, a chapter that's kind of a traditional short story. It's set in the war. And then the next chapter will be the, the writer, like, explaining the last story that you read, saying, uh, these parts really happened to me. This other part didn't. Uh, <laughs> I made that up for the story. But I think the emotions you feel from that are more true to Vietnam than the things that actually happened. So I put it uh-huh. in. Uh, and, and so this film, I think, definitely has the genre mashing, where you have martial arts film, you have action, you have comedy, you have monster and horror all, all getting thrown in together. And I think there's a level of self-awareness. It doesn't reach like the overt recognition to the audience that they're watching mm. a performance. But I definitely think both Kurt Russell and John Carpenter have some awareness of the tropes that they're they're employing and yeah. and how they're getting used and what some of the audience expectations for these are. But it's not the most successful piece of postmodern. <laughs> like I wouldn't hold this up and say this this really encapsulates postmodernism. I think the, the, I just the, think- the most maybe the most postmodern thing that we've looked at on this podcast is um Thursday next in the air yeah. affair, mm-hmm. right? Yes. I mean, that's that's postmodernism, but I would say that that's like pastiche well done. Mm-hmm. And and it m- meshes a bunch of genres, and it's like a good rollicking story. It's lots of fun, and it's it's cohesive. Whereas this is kind of pastiche, but the cracks are showing. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I t- I totally get that that some people watch this and they just think, man, that is the funniest movie <laughs> I have ever seen. And I have to say, 
some of uh, the the classic or cult classic films that have the reputation for being so bad they're good, they are more entertaining under various influences. <laughs> <laughs> like extreme sleep deprivation, certain substances. Yes, exactly. And yeah. uh, I, I could totally see this being uh, one of those that in college dorms around the country this gets thrown on well. <laughs> Other yeah. other substances are being consumed, and it makes it all just a crazier experience. Yeah, it is a it is a wild experience, and like I said, I I get, I understand why people think that this is a really really funny movie. I had a great uh, teacher in in grad school who said it's totally okay for you to say like I understand why this speaks to some people. It just doesn't speak to me, and I think that that's a, my like my biggest takeaway from this is. I get, I get that it's funny. There, I mean, there are some really legitimately funny parts in this film, and I understand why somebody could like hold this dear to their heart and say that is one of the funniest movies ever. But it just doesn't speak to me. <laughs> I have a really hard time connecting with this film. But, uh, but I think it's good to be exposed to stuff like that sometimes. Yeah. So I don't regret it. Maybe I regret seeing it twice. <laughs> Life's short. <laughs> well, Todd, any uh, any final thoughts? No, that, that was my final thought. All right. I, uh, my final thought is just there is some fantastic 1980s fashion on display. <laughs> <laughs> and so in hairstyles. <laughs> I, I don't know if we did. We, we describe him well enough. So he's got this, this kind of like the feathered 80s hair. Yes. And then he's got a tank a, top. A tank top. White tank top with. Uh, with like the, the big, you know, like the big. The big armholes. Yeah. Okay. Like a big kind of saggy, but it's tucked into his jeans. His jeans are kind of pulled up around his belly button a little bit. And then he's got these very tall boots. I think, I don't know. How would we describe these boots? They're lace up, right? Yeah. They they lace up. (laughs) They're, They're like brown leather boots that lace up. Almost like the kind of boots that I think maybe like women in our time would say, wow, I really like those boots. They're kind of like, the, they almost remind me of the boots that the lady wears at the beginning in the, in, in the, in the early uh, episodes of um, once upon a time. Don't you have some boots like that? Some lace up boots. I've never seen them once upon a time. Um, anyway, so he's wearing these jeans and they're tucked into these very tall up to just below his knee lace up boots. Oh, well, and I, we should mention his tank top has, um, well, what does it say on it? It's a big red circle, so kind of like the Japanese flag, and there's an offensive caricature of an Asian man on oh, <laughs> on the front of it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's so weird. To just, and he, it, doesn't he often have... So he has the knife in his boots, and sometimes there's the knife tucked into his belt also, which seems yeah. dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> just, and mo- just and mo- so during much of the film, he's running around with this Uzi. Yeah, yeah, he's got the gun. And it, it's funny because like it, there's it, uh, what who does he take it from? Does he take it from Eddie? They get the guns. They get the guns from the guards. And Jack has like this old six shooter, and one of the other characters has the, the Uzi. Yeah. And Jack says, "Here, I'll trade you." And he, <laughs> he just trades him, and he gets the he gets the the machine gun. Oh, it's, it's so strange. Uh, well, I, uh, okay. This maybe should have gone back with a. Uh, this is my last comment, but this maybe should have gone back with the stereotype discussion. But when Lopan is, I think for the wedding ceremony, that is maybe every, uh, racist Asian, uh, stereotype imagery you can imagine is a thing all rolled into that. <laughs> he's got long curling fingernails. He's got the Fu Manchu mustache. He's got the, like a the silk s- robes. A neon snake behind him. Yeah, he's got the silk robes with some bright oh, color trim and uh, this weird headdress going on. Just uh, <laughs> I, That one I think is so over the top. They had to be going for it on purpose to kind of make fun of the old stereotypes. Yeah. I like it when Jack um, confronts Lopan. He says, are you crazy? Is that your problem? (laughs) Before you finally wrap things up, uh, I was recently a guest on a podcast called The Collapsed Wave Function. (laughs) It's a... Yeah, that doesn't mean anything to you, does it? No. Is it a science podcast? It is a science podcast. Uh, We talked about good science in movies uh, and, and whether or not they were actually 
like doing anything right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it was, it was a really fun discussion. I, I had a really great time. It might show up this week or next week. So go ahead and, you know, check them out. And, and that episode should be going up soon. We'll put a link to that in our show notes. Well, that wraps up this episode. Thank you again for joining us. Please subscribe to the protagonist podcast in iTunes and leave us a review to help with our listenership and our feelings of self-worth. And that really does help spread the word, uh, having those reviews there links to things that we've talked about in this episode are at protagonistpodcast.com. And there you can also find a list of all of our previous shows and you can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss or give us any comments or corrections or feedback by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're all on Twitter at protagonistpod at Todd K. Mack, at Jay Dorowski, and our producer Andrew is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonist podcast. If you go like that page, you'll be able to see any updates that we put up there and any discussion that is taking place. If you would like to buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation for the show with a financial donation, you can click the support link on our homepage or go to patreon.com slash protagonist. And patrons who have donated any amount will be getting a special bonus episode of Protagonist Podcast in which we'll be discussing Star Wars the force awakens and just giving our initial reactions to that film. And that again, that'll go out to any patron who has donated any amount through that link. Also, don't forget to take advantage of great deals from Amazon by going to protagonistpodcast.com slash deals or by making purchases through protagonistpodcast.com slash Amazon. And finally, don't forget to sign up for a 30-day free trial of audible.com by going to audibletrial.com slash protagonist. Thanks again for listening, and we will be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Sir Andrew is not being a good producer at the moment. Sorry. He is waving his phone in front of me and is showing a video of baby octopi hatching <laughs> en masse from a mound of octopus eggs. I'm sorry. I, I looked at it. I was making a face and Joseph like waved and like, what are you looking at? And it was... <laughs> okay. I can't remember. Is I'm octopi putting... really the plural or is it because this Greek root it should be octopuses? Uh, I heard octipides is an acceptable plural. Okay.